Welcome to the Reconciliation Conversation. We want this podcast to be a space where we can expose hate, encourage love, equip for healthy reconciliation, and emphasize unity so that all people can know their value together as one. Well, welcome to another edition of the Reconciliation Conversation. Uh, as always, my name is Derek. I'm here with my good friend, Jason. Jason, how are you doing today, bro? I'm doing well. Listen, well, uh, I'm excited about, about today. Uh, we actually have uh, a wonderful guest. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, digging, uh, digging in and, and talking with her a little bit. Uh, but uh, former military brat, sort of a PK, right? Liberty grad is focused in political science and debate and law. And now it's currently uh, in seminary, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, where she's a THM student. Uh, she connects theology and uh, spiritual formation and culture and our favorite topic, politics. Uh, she is the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce to you, uh, Caitlin Scheiss. How are you doing, Caitlin? I'm good. I'm so glad to be here. I'm a little jealous hearing y'all talk about it being cold, though, because I'm in Dallas and it is not cold yet. <laughs> hot. Yeah. Listen, so I went to Dallas one time and I told myself that was good enough for me. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, hot. <laughs> it's hot down there. I don't, I don't have time for that. Caitlin, I want to I want to make sure. Did I did I pronounce your last name right? It's Chess, actually. Yes. You see, mm-hmm. that's that's why you ask. Yeah. You know? So I'm, I'm glad I'm glad I was able to, to do that. Well, uh, well, Caitlin, we're, we're excited. We're, uh, thank you for, for joining us uh, today. Um, I'm going to jump right in uh, if you're OK with that. Go for it. Uh, so uh, graduate from from Liberty University. Um, I know you got your degree in, in history there uh, and, and partisan politics right now. This in no way is not a former president question. OK, thank you. Uh, you are welcome. We're, we're not we're not going there. We're not going there. Uh, but I would love it. <laughs> we would love it if you could talk about your experience there uh, and how it has actually shaped your passion for politics now. Yeah. So I when I got to Liberty, thought I was going to go to law school. I started as a government major, and when I started in 2012, the atmosphere at Liberty was very different than it is now. There was kind of a lull between the two fall wells, and there was kind of an emphasis on, okay, we respect some of the moral majority kind of legacy, but we're kind of moving away from that, and we're kind of our own place now. And then by the time I graduated in 2016, it was a completely different story. Uh, Falwell Jr. had kind of become much more politically involved. We were having constant uh, political presence on campus. So Ted Cruz announced his candidacy. Trump spoke uh, once while I was there and then eventually spoke at graduation the year after I graduated. And, you know, everything that our president was saying was on Fox News and people were talking about it all the time. And so it was just a really a very political environment. Mm-hmm. And I experienced, I think, pretty pretty intimately every day, how much back and forth there was where I would have a theology class, a Bible class, and we would learn certain things. And then we would go to convocation, which was our chapel three times a week. And we would sing worship songs. And then there would be a politician or a political commentator speaking. And they were sometimes Christians, they were often not. And it was just a really 
eye-opening experience, one of how disconnected these two realms were, you know, not very few of us were unaware that the things we learned in a theology class were different from the things we learned politically. And it was all about finding the kind of way to deal with the cognitive dissonance there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also just, I was on the debate team. So I was in this little community of people who were traveling together and living together. And it was honestly the, the one space on campus I found personally that I could ask questions, people could push and pull and kind of test out ideas. And it was that thing where I got there, you know, freshman year, learn all of these amazing things and kind of go way far left, you know, opposite of everything my parents ever taught me because I've Mm -hmm. just discovered all these people and then kind of moderating out and figuring out what I really think. And, and, and it was just a, it was such a positive experience to have that space on campus to do that, Mm -hmm. to experience what the broader campus was going through and then bring it back to these people that I trusted, including a bunch of our coaches and our leaders who were faithful Christians and who cared about asking these questions and answering them well. And that looking back on it, I mean, introduced me to some of the thinkers that became influential to me later in seminary. And so Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful for that and for, and for a handful of professors that were positive and faithful. Um, But honestly, and I'm also kind of thankful for seeing the negative things there because it, it gave me such a encapsulation of what is probably true more broadly of evangelical politics and gave me a passion for, for changing it. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that is, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I had some friends who um, were on campus around that, that season as well. Uh, and it's really interesting to see how um, that dichotomy, right? Um, those different things uh, can really begin to spark in our hearts and our lives a desire to be like, man, I need to be educated in this i need to know a little bit more um and not just be spoon-fed different things that are that are happening so that's awesome i appreciate you sharing that yeah it's good so continuing in that vein you know i'd I'd love for you to to share with our listeners how you see the political reality right now right like what what what's the issue or what's kind of the dilemma or or maybe you don't see it as a dilemma Mm -hmm. Um, although I think you might, but, but it's, it's, uh, and then, and then not only that, even thinking about, we are not a United States of America right now. We are very much a disunited States of America or an ununited States of America. Why, why is that right? Share some of the thoughts and the perceptions that you have. Yeah. So really the, the focus that I tend to have and the focus I have in the book is less on the particular ways people vote or particular politicians they support and more about the animating stories that they have believed, whether they realize it or not, and that then motivate how they, how they live and act in the world. And so when so much of our politics runs on these really formative stories, a great example is always campaign ads that use music and, you know, sound and images and, you know, dark and light, you know, very kind of primitive ways of communicating things, but they spark something deeply emotional in us. And so we're not always even aware of how our hearts are being formed by these things. And so when a lot of that runs on fear and on creating, you know, us and them, who are you loyal to? Who do you have to protect? And who do you have to be protected from? Those kinds of things are really powerful. And I use the word primitive because they, they kind of speak to something that's both psychological and physiological and physical of, you know, I'm presented with this fear and I'm presented with an enemy that is going to to cause this to happen to me. There's almost a, a less than conscious response in your body and in your mind to protect yourself, protect your community, whoever you've decided is part of you, Mm. which is a whole other political question. Who do I feel like I have to protect in my community? 
living in Dallas, we're a very segregated city. So like, who do I feel like are my people? And all of those ads and social media and and general media that we consume, those teach us who is part of me and who is not. And those happen on registers that I don't think are always conscious. And so we can have a conversation where we say, these are the things I believe politically, and I could write them all down for you. And someone else could write down what they think. And maybe they don't actually look that different, but there's something deeper beneath the surface that's really kind of motivating my political action. I might say, here are the policies I support, but really there's this fear and loyalty and desire and love and all of those things that those are really counter to what this other person, you know, we have competing visions of what the good life is, of what our nation should be, of what a people should be, of of what Christian's responsibility in the world is. And so we think we're having a productive conversation by talking about these surface, you know, and those policies and politicians are important, but we're not getting necessarily always to where the real conflict and disagreement is. And so especially for Christians, there are right and wrong answers to some of those questions. And yet we're we're not prompting to kind of get to, you actually have a fear you shouldn't have, or you feel a loyalty to the wrong people, or you feel, you know, this is what you think the world should look like. And that's, that doesn't match what scripture says. But if we stay on the surface level of policies and politicians, I don't think we're getting to the real root of that division. Yeah, that's good. It's really good. So, so let's, let's, let's go below those surface talks and more into the root of that. I mean, I think about the, the American church's politics are shaped by habits and practices. You you talk about that in your book. You you just said it there, and I think you're right. I think we're often unaware, maybe even it's subconscious, the the primal elements that it, that it creates heartstrings to. Right, like you you know it creates these heartstrings, and then all of a sudden that political narrative, whichever it is that strums the heartstring for us, yeah. is what begins to drive us in in our thinking instead of the gospel of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus or the ways of the scriptures that God has laid out for us. Um, the character of God may look different than these narratives that we've begun to yeah. allow to shape us. And so you know, talk about that, like give, give, maybe even for our listeners, especially give an example of how this culture shaping reality has hurt the church, the, the American church, how, maybe even how it could help us, or maybe it has, if there's certain ways it has. And, and just, so take us below the surface, like you just said. Yeah. So one of the stories that I often tell, because it just was such a formative example for me, was when I was at Liberty, uh, Bernie Sanders came and spoke in convocation. And it was a big deal because, you know, to keep their nonprofit status, they had to, if they were going to invite one presidential candidate, they had to invite all of them. And really the surprising thing and something I think we should give him a lot of credit for was that Bernie Sanders showed up at a place. He came. That, yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> no, none of the other Democratic candidates came. They, I mean, because it, it would be a pretty scary place to show up, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and to his credit, he came and he got on stage and he had a conversation with our campus pastor. And he tried at one point to just say, look we agree that the most vulnerable people in our communities should be cared for. That's something I can agree with Christians on. And, and we should be able to work for that. And we might have different ways that we go about seeking that, but at least we should be able to share this common ground. And I remember sitting there and just looking around and everyone's arms were crossed and their faces were kind of tense. And it was just like, you know, we not only do we not trust you, but, but almost a resistance to even that idea that we shared mm-hmm. some common ground about treating the vulnerable, you know, in our communities. And then it was only like a week or two later, 
that Ann Voskamp, who's a Bible teacher and, and not a politician, she came and spoke and she spoke on Esther. And her whole kind of message was, are you willing to sacrifice for the people outside the gate? And she used the, wow. the term privilege, which people were really upset about. But she was like, if you have some privilege, like you need to use it for you, use it on behalf of people who don't. And I looked around and it was the same crossed arms and stern faces. And it was such an image to me of how over time, hearing messages about wealth and poverty in political terms and the terms that taught you to be opposed to Bernie Sanders, they didn't just stay in the political realm. They, they moved know. into a theological and a spiritual realm so that when Ann Voskamp gave up, came up and she was not proposing anything political, she wasn't no. running for any office, she mm-hmm. was saying something about just plainly what scripture tells us to do. But there was a resistance to that idea that was built in by accepting this story about wealth and wow. poverty that wow. wasn't just here's, you know, the welfare system or lack of welfare system we should have. It was a story that said, if you're poor, you deserve it. If you're wealthy, you deserve it. And that was so deeply ingrained that we mm-hmm. were unable to see that it was theologically errant. Mm-hmm. And so I think that to answer the second part of your question, there are positive ways in which actually I think the church can can learn from forces outside of it, right? We believe in common grace. There are people who are politicians seeking the good that we can can agree with. And I even think in America, the act of voting, if we understand it correctly, and if we're really believing that we are supposed to seek the flourishing of the most vulnerable in our communities, that act of kind of going, okay, I'm actually voting against some of my self-interest here. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. vote for, for the sake of other people. Right. That could then form us in ways that then we would do that in other areas of our life too. It's a formative practice. And so yeah. there's potential for good, but unfortunately there are certain stories that historically have been more captivating to a especially white evangelical voters that are counter to the gospel and our inability to tell when can we work alongside someone because we actually do have the same vision in this particular instance of what is good or true. And when do I have to say, Hey, even if I vote for this policy that you vote for, I'm not accepting the story that you're selling that goes along with it. Our inability to Mm -hmm. kind of make those distinctions makes it really hard for us not to be ultimately harmed by our engagement instead of helped. Wow. That's good. That's good. So something, uh, something that my wife and I have uh, adopted um, back in 2000, uh, 2010. Now we we heard someone talking about this and we're like, yeah, that makes complete sense. Uh, if we are called to love God, love others, right? Love our neighbor as ourselves. That it's like, man, what would it look like for us to in everything when we vote that we vote with our neighbor in mind, not yeah. us. Uh, and like, that was a complete game changer, right? Because yeah. you know, typically we grew up, it's like, nah, like you vote for what you want, right? Yep. Um, versus like, no, like I'm thinking about the flourishing, the betterment of others above myself. Um, what would you like to vote with those individuals in mind? That's, yeah, I think it's good. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so you you assert uh, that that there's this hunger uh, among your peers for, for better, more robust, theologically informed thinking about politics um, and uh, that the Christian tradition has rich theological resources for this type of robust thinking. Um, Talk to us a little bit uh, about um, the the renaissance you're seeing in in spiritual formation um, among uh, young church leaders, your, your peers. Yeah. So even just being, you know, in seminary right now, a lot of the classes I've taken and even the classes I've taken that are not especially spiritual formation classes, there's that language and that kind of mentality. Um, Some of this I attribute to writers like James K. Smith, but some of it I think is just younger people 
who come to church and there's, you know, a fog machine and a coffee shop and those kinds of things. And they go, I can get that anywhere. <laughs> like that is not something that I don't already have in my life, but they are drawn to something that feels more rooted than everything else in their life. When we are yeah. more transitory than we've ever been, we change jobs more often than we ever have. We're usually more separated from our, from our families than we ever have been in history. And so we're looking for what is something that actually has has been around for a long time, has stood the test of time. And, and also I think, I mean, it, it goes back to, we like records again, you know, and like we want a physical journal instead of, you know, yeah. Gmail, you know, calendars. Like there are so many instances where people my age are like thinking it's hip or retro to do something that is a little bit older. <laughs> and I think that translates sometimes to church, you know, we want the mm-hmm. stained glass windows or the liturgy or, you know, and, and so there's kind of the trendy part of that, that, that might fade. But I do think there's also an earnest desire to say, okay, I've been in enough churches that gave me the right things to think. And I've also mm-hmm. watched hypocrisy of leaders that let me know that knowing the right things doesn't always get say you to that. the right place of action. Yeah, and so introduced, I think, to the idea that, you know, your church didn't just pop out of nowhere. It's part of this long tradition. And actually, you're more similar to people throughout history and around the globe than you are your next door neighbors. And you can kind of become more of that by practicing spiritual disciplines, by engaging in historic liturgy, by doing, I mean, things that you're probably already doing when it comes to communion and baptism, but really recognizing that, that connection that people have been doing that for a long time. And what has it meant? And are we, are we being thoughtful about the way that we engage in those things? I think that's just, that's exciting and that's beautiful. And that's something that people aren't getting in other parts of their life. And I, tr- and I truly think part of it too is just, seeing other traditions, maybe if you come from a more evangelical low church tradition, seeing other traditions that might be interacting in the public sphere in a better way than you and wondering, Mm. you know, my hip church has thousands of people. And yet I don't think we're making the impact in our community that we should be. And in fact, I think a lot of my leaders are quite beholden to certain, you know, political leaders or certain policies. And so why is that more, you know, frequent in my community? And it's not to say there aren't other communities that are that way, but just to say that I think a lot more young people are going, not only are these things appealing to me, but also there can't be something, there has to be something wrong with the way that we're doing church if we're so vulnerable and susceptible to these kinds of things. Can I, I want to give, and this, it's not my turn to ask a question yet, but I'm going to jump in for a second. (laughs) I want to highlight just from a historical perspective, when I was in seminary, spiritual formation, in my opinion, and I can give several critical incidences for this in dialoguing with the actual authors that were held in high regard at the time. But when I was in seminary, in my opinion, spiritual formation was more about self-development than mm-hmm. it was about community development. Yeah. That's how it was when I was in seminary, too. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I, tell me if you think I'm wrong, Caitlin, but I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think the Renaissance has a lot to do with the realization of collective, not just individual, the realization of the fact that 90 plus percent of the YOUs in the New Testament are plural, right? Mm-hmm. The realization of the idea that this collective living out and understanding and learning of the gospel together is what is required to actually learn the gospel. Like I, I know I need to forgive myself and even create reconciliation yeah. sometimes with the battles in my own heart and mind, but that's not 
the level of forgiveness, grace, and reconciliation that's going to transform the way a community of gospel embodiment would. And so that's- I, I think it's so beautiful, and I, that and 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 I that's what I hear the difference mm-hmm. is. Like when I yeah. talk to young leaders, it's and that's why I love the title of your book because the subtitle being you know the idea of this being for the sake of our neighbor. Like yeah, yeah I, I when I do when I do Bible training, I mean Bible reading training sometimes helping people just be more confident reading scriptures. I'll often ask this question: well, Who are you reading the Bible for? Mm. And 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 just that, even that one idea, tends to to rock the people in the class enough to be able to say, "Okay, so spiritual formation isn't just for me, right? Like, how do I, how do I?" And I think that's what I want to admire and applaud. I think your generation gets the shaft too often, and I I I want to admire and applaud. I'm on I'm on the upper edge of millennial i'm just right outside of that for parentheses mm-hmm. um and how, far you are, off, how far off are you I'm come on now we, we don't have to go that far we don't have to go that far but i tend to think a lot more like millennials and even and even gen z in the sense of um of, of just how just the, the philosophical perspective and the community perspective that they tend yeah. to take and and so i admire that and I want our listeners to hear that clearly, mm-hmm. that, that, that you're challenging us to form in Christ for much more than just ourselves. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, the entire chapter, I think it's the one I wrote on, on spiritual disciplines, starts off with, what is your salvation for? Is that a question you've ever asked? It's for the sake of the world. It's not just for yourself, but also then kind of going through all the spiritual disciplines that we have taken primarily to mean, how do I fix my inner self? How do I find some contentment or calm? And then flipping them a little bit and saying, literally every single one of these is intended, not in some far progression of, of causes to lead you to act differently in the world. It's not just, okay, if I spend a ton of time fixing myself up, then I'll be a better person out in the world. Most of them are really intended to turn yourself outward, you know, not only denying yourself. The example that's the easiest is when in the early church, they would be fasting for the sake of collecting food for someone who was in need. It's not just denying yourself for the sake of denying yourself. It's denying yourself for the sake of other people in your community. And so being able to take that lens and like look at every single practice that we have, because while a lot of people my age, I think you're right, are, are invested in community. I mean, even outside the church, there there are people that are trying to live in apartment right. buildings that have communal spaces and like they want that. Yes. But I also think a lot of us just grew up. We had a taste of that in our churches growing up, of it being very individual, very focused on our inner piety, and then going out into the world and seeing some of the results of that politically and socially, and recognizing that that couldn't that couldn't be what these things were yeah. intended to be. Yeah, it didn't go well. It didn't go well. And it not only didn't go well, it's caused serious, serious amount of faith questions in in your generation to be able to say, I mean, not only do we have this issue with white Jesus, right? But we, but we, but we, but we have the issue now, not only of that, but all these other facets of theology that you taught me, but I didn't see them. They didn't work in the world, right? And so, and when you look at Jesus's life and it worked in the world, what he did, and I'm not talking about the fact that he became some icon and nobody crucified him. I'm saying it worked in the world because it caused people yeah. to want to die for him. 
that yeah. it caused people to want to live in such a way that other people were like they were life giving in other words yeah. not life preserving or right. life stealing and so i think it's a big deal I, I i hope our listeners hear that i hope they catch that yeah now yeah. now I, i'm uninterrupting there you uh, no it's all good well i mean we we brought <laughs> it up a little bit we uh you know mentioned uh mentioned the liturgy of politics um you know the the title of your book uh, can you explain to our listeners what this liturgy of politics is? You know this the, this connection between you know our political work, uh, our our corporate worship, what we do, um, you know, in the in, in our church buildings, body of Christ, and our spiritual disciplines. We hit on it a little bit, um, but but can you explain to us a little bit more about about what you mean by that? Yeah, so I used to kind of joke that the publisher just took two controversial words and put them together for the title. <laughs> it's just like. You know, bam, bam, liturgy politics. Um, <laughs> but also, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, truly, I mean, the the first half of the book is focused on the one direction of how are our political practices akin to liturgies? How do they shape us and form us in less than cognitive ways, in embodied ways, in repeated ways, drawing on our emotions? And um, and then the second half goes, okay, if that's true, if our political participation is like a liturgy, it forms these stories so strongly in us. And yet in the middle, spend a couple chapters going, but we have to engage. Here's the reasons why it's part of our creational identity and our eternal you know, purpose on earth and redeem creation to, mm -hmm. to create communities and seek flourishing for people. If that's all true, it's very dangerous, yet we should do it. What is the answer? And the, the quote unquote answer is not me as the young person coming in and saying like, I've got the solution. It's you know, thousands of years of Christian history, how have Christians been able to engage well with the world? It's been not through, I mean, I love a good sermon. I love a good Bible study, but it hasn't been primarily through here are a list of propositions and now go and engage the world. Or here is a bunch of cognitive based kind of learning. It's been through, you know, repeated liturgies in the sense of, of prayers and, and spoken words together and scripture that's read out loud that form the rhythm, the kind of language that we first reach to because it is repetitive and we've heard it our whole lives that go through, you know, both communion and baptism and say, how are these not primarily just about kind of signifying this inner reality outwardly, but how is it really about being initiated into a community that is your primary place of loyalty, the primary place right. from which you interact with the world? How does communion teach us how we are bound together in a diverse community? Um, and then spiritual disciplines, like I said, how they are supposed to form us in primarily outward ways. And so really the goal of, of using the phrase and the idea of liturgy to kind of shape the whole book was to say, I know so many pastors who are in congregations where they can tell that their people are held captive by these political stories, by these desires and these loyalties. And I want them to preach a sermon that's hard hitting. I want them to introduce a Bible study, but I don't know that those are the most effective tools that we have. And, and oftentimes they're pretty short sighted, you know, one yeah. sermon, one Bible study, those are great. And I want them to happen, but how are we more long-term saying, that love that they have for their physical security, for their country, for their racial identity, that love isn't going to just be dismantled by one hard hitting sermon. It's going to require their loves being shaped slowly over time through these practices that we inherit from the church because they work because God has, has guided us the Holy spirit over time. Um, and so instead of trying to come up with, you know, a lot of churches, especially in, in the moment that we've had with, with racial injustice being being more brought to our attention, um, especially to white churches' attention, 
I feel like a lot of churches have gone, what statement can we make? What, what's the correct language to use? And there can be some value in that, but, but there's something deeper going on in the hearts, especially in, in predominantly white churches. There's something deeper going on in the hearts of your people that you could craft the right statement. And that's not going to get at the heart of white supremacy that could still reign in them. If their loves have been directed a certain way, if the, if their vision of a good life looks a certain way. And so dealing with that is going to require some more, a more liturgical focus. That's good. Thanks. So good. That's really good. I appreciate that. Well, it's, it's, uh, so I, I've coached high school basketball over the years and, and, um, and I, I remember going to the great theologian, Rick Majerus, and I'm joking because he's not a great theologian. He was, the head, the head, he's an amazing theologian. Yeah, he's the, he was the head coach of university of Utah. And, uh, but I remember him saying in a clinic, it's not what you teach, it's what you emphasize. Mm. And, and so our basketball program, where I was at the time, we shaped it around four creatively redundant principles, right? Mm. A, a liturgy. So yeah. as a college pastor, we did the same thing. And then I, when I was doing church starting or began to do church starting, I went to a guy named Harold Bullock, who's in Fort Worth. He's with Hope Church. Now, he may not be there anymore. This was 2003 when I went and met with him. So that's 17 years ago, but I'm pretty positive he's still in that area. But I remember him saying the same exact thing. I, 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 he said, I want to give you three leadership principles that changed everything about ministry leadership for me and just life in the world, family raising and on and on. And one of the three was, it's not what you teach, it's what you emphasize. And that's what you're saying, right? I mean, like the liturgies we create are much more formative than the one hit sermons. And, and I love that. I think that's, I think that's significant. Um, well, as we, as we wrap up here in that same vein, I mean, we're talking about what we emphasize, what those liturgies are, you know, what, what's a warning that you might give to our listeners if this present reality of how how are we're being shaped, um, if that doesn't change, and if we don't recover the historic Christian practices that shape us according to the truth of the gospel, what's a warning that you might give us? And how do we recover these historic Christian practices that have, that need to shape us? Yeah, I think part of what um, often happens when we're thinking about politics is we have this this short-sighted perspective of, are we voting right? Does my church kind of have people that are, that are responding the right way to this political moment? And I think the better question would be, okay, these stories, these ways of thinking, these loyalties, these loves, if your people are saturated in that and you're not speaking into it because it's an election season and it's divisive, which is, I empathize with so greatly, you know, it's hard. But, but the kind of thinking tends to be, let's just get through the election season. Like, we won't mm. deal with any of this stuff. Politics has come and brought in this foreign division into our community. And so we get past this and we'll be good. And I think that that's pretty, pretty short-sighted because those stories will continue to impact us beyond the election season. They might even be yeah. reinforced as we vote, as we support certain candidates, as we, in the aftermath of the election, kind of choose the things that we're celebrating or mourning, or they reflect something much more deeper in us. And so I think if we are continually unaware of those stories, they're going to continue to impact not only just the political realm, which is a lot of the times my focus, but 
they're going to shape the way that your church interacts in non-political ways. So you think that people have this focus on safety and security. And so that's going to choose, you know, that's going to force them to vote a certain way. The next time you're looking for them to serve in their community, to go to a country that might be less safe, the next time that you're trying to get them to do something that isn't quote unquote political, but that rubs up against these stories of security and prosperity, wealth and health, they're going to impact you in theological ways when it comes to your your witness in the world, when it comes to evangelism. There's going to be repercussions that even if you claim to not care about politics, you need to, to care about the spiritual condition of your people and then your mm. church's witness in the world that will continue to be heard. You know, a lot of people focus on the hypocrisy of evangelicals for saying certain things and then supporting another candidate. And that's completely valid. And yet I'm more concerned about the hypocrisy of that continuing to shape the way that we engage in all sorts of ways. You know, you might say, yeah. I don't want to vote for this policy because I think the church should help the poor and not and not the, the government. And yet that story about wealth and poverty, when it continues to, to shape and form you, suddenly your church isn't serving the poor, even when it's not in a political realm, because they truly yeah. have bought this belief that if you're poor, you deserve it. And if you're wealthy, you've earned it. And I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I, you know, I deserve everything I have. And so even if you're not concerned with their vote, that these stories will continue to shape shape the the life of the church outside of those things. And then in terms of encouraging us to recover those practices, I think it really comes down to one learning from churches that don't look like us, especially mm-hmm. white churches in America learning, you know, how black churches in America have engaged politically in ways that were in line with their beliefs and not counter to them in ways that didn't shape them in in negative ways. Um, and then especially, I mean thinking of the church more globally and saying what practices have shaped the church even outside of our country in really positive ways. So that historic and that global element, and then saying, do we, do, are we really willing to have our worship as it has been through all of scripture be a sacrifice, not only because we're taking time out of a day to spend time praising God, but a sacrifice in the sense of, I have my preferences for how my church will run. They are not serving my community because they are not shaping us into the people that we need to be. So I'm going to give up my favorite worship song because it's theology isn't good or because it's not helping me, you know, you know, feed the poor and engage in my community. I'm going to sacrifice my preferences because it's for the greater good of our community. And having the ability to do that even is, is probably even more important than saying, okay, here's a list of really old practices. You should do all of them because we've done them forever. It's more about, are you really willing to sacrifice your preferences for the sake of what has historically formed the church in positive ways to interact with the world? Man alive. <laughs> I, I, I agree. <laughs> Girl, you better stop. You 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 preaching to people and they need to hear that. Um I'm thankful that you're saying it. That that was good. If uh these these are conversations that uh Jason and I are having off 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 camera, if you will. Um and the fact that we have there are so many people who are uh, who are saying it, who are living it out in other places or seeking to live it out in other places yeah. who are challenging people in their spheres. Uh, I am encouraged um, and you have encouraged me today. I greatly appreciate Good. that, Caitlin. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah. So, Caitlin, um, uh, obviously you're on social media, right? Because all authors are and all that good stuff. <laughs> uh, so so where, where can people follow you? Are, are you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff? Yeah, all of the above at Caitlin Chess. Um, I spend way too much time on Twitter, so if you want to see the, the the more spicy side, you can go there. <laughs> oh, this wasn't spicy. Oh, let's go. No, I'm playing. I'm playing. 
Um, well, awesome. And uh, you have you have a website as well. Uh, uh, as Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, CaitlinChess.com. I, I do a little bit of blogging now, but mostly it's just uh, you can check the book out there. Dope, dope. And uh, the book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Go pick that up. Support our sister uh, and yep. learn a little bit more. Uh, Caitlin, thank you very much. And to our, our listeners, again, thank you for tuning in uh, on the Reconciliation Conversation. We're continuing the conversation next time. Thanks. Thank you for joining in on the Reconciliation Conversation. Remember, you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Recon Convo. You can also stay connected with us through our website, reconciliationconversation.com, or feel free to subscribe to our YouTube channel under No More Night Media. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you next time.